Well, good morning, church family. How are y'all doing? I pray you had a great Thanksgiving with your family. I pray that you had your stomachs full and your hearts full as well. I am extremely thrilled and honored to be with you this morning, and I am also thankful that I didn't trip on my way to the pulpit this morning, so we're off to a good start. Um, but yeah, I'm thrilled to be here, humbled. There have been some really powerful preachers standing in this position and been here, and I'm humbled that I get to follow in their footsteps. And I just want to take a quick second to throw honor towards our pastor. I'm so thankful for Pastor Paul. He is a godly man, a biblical preacher, and a humble leader. And I speak for myself, but I think I speak on behalf of our entire staff. We are thrilled to follow him and his lead as he follows Christ. Yeah. One of the greatest men of God I've ever met in my entire life, and that's from four months of knowing him, just for a quick example. But if you would, as we jump in today, I would have you do a little activity with me. And what I want you to do is I'm going to give you three lists. And what I encourage you to do in your mind or even on paper, I want you to do as quickly as possible, I want you to write down these five things for these five lists, okay? So the first list is the five most impactful sermons that you have ever heard that have drawn you closer to Jesus. I want you to, as quick as possible in your brain or even on paper, write those down, okay? And then the second list would be the five most impactful experiences that have drawn you closer to Jesus. So the five most impactful sermons you've ever heard that have drawn you closer to Jesus, the five most impactful experiences that have drawn you closer to Jesus. And then the last list would be the five most impactful people who have drawn you closer to Jesus. See how quickly you can write those lists down. And just for sake of time, I wanna go ahead and ask you, which list do you think was the easiest to accomplish? I would say the most difficult to come up with was undoubtedly the sermons, not because sermons aren't important. That would be silly for me to say as I'm delivering one. All right. The experiences were probably a little easier, but there's no doubt in my mind that the easiest one to come up with in your mind or even on paper was the list of people. And I would even go out on a limb and say that it would be easy for you to come up with far more than five names. I know that's true of me. So why is that the case? It's because God has wired us as highly relational beings. We were created for relationship with him, and the number one most important and beneficial relationship that we have is the one with our heavenly father. There's no argument there. But there's no denying the impact that people have upon us. Am I correct in that? Just so y'all know, I'm used to preaching to high school kids, and I have a lot of interaction with them, so feel free to talk back to me. It's all good. It's all good. The most important, again, and beneficial relationship is ours, with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But here's the truth. This is the first point. The deepest impact we often experience comes from the investment of others in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced that on a very high scale in my life, especially as of late. We have a lot to be thankful for, and a lot of these things, for one reason or another, come into plain view during this time of year. It's like there's a holiday or something. You know what I'm saying going on? Small joke, sorry. But the truth is, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 teaches us that we're supposed to be given thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. So if that's the case, Christian, every day is thanksgiving in Christ. Amen. Every day. And I'm thankful. But one of the things I've been most thankful for in my entire life is the godly men who have stepped into my life and equally invited me into theirs. If you've been around me for any legitimate amount of time, you will have come to notice that I have a very intense passion for disciple making. The high school students are like, oh yeah. It's because I'm vocal about it. And here's why. I spent a good portion of my early Christian life ignorant. And ignorant means you just don't know. Ignorant 
of all that Christ desired to do in and through my life. No one ever told me the wondrous truths of what it meant to be in Christ. No one ever walked with me through what it truly meant to be a new creation in Christ. No one ever showed me what it looked like to walk in victory over the vices that men face. No one ever taught me how to pursue a woman in a godly way. No one ever explained to me that the Great Commission was not simply an encouragement for the few, but a command, a biblical mandate for the entire church body. No one ever told me that. And I was in church every week. In essence, no one ever discipled me. I don't ever even remember that word, disciple, being used in the church circles I find myself in as a young man. And this isn't to bash my church. That's not the point. It's to bring to light something that I believe the Bible highlights very intensely. It's, in, it's interesting, though, that I didn't hear that word used very often when in the first five books of the Bible, the word disciple is used 269 times. You know how many times the word Christian is used in the Bible? Three. Being a disciple is important, and understanding that concept cannot be minimized. A dramatic example of this would be like a young person who enlists in the army, and then they hand that young person a book on the army and say, all right, buddy, go defend the country. And he's like, <laughs> Scooby-Doo. Right? Hey, listen, if he read the book, which would be good, if he read the book, he would have some extent understanding of how maybe or some extent what to do some extent theoretically but he would have no he or she would have no idea how to do it practically am I correct you know what happened to me when I became a Christian at eight years old somebody tossed me a bible and told me to be Christian that's what happened that's not how it's supposed to be friends let me throw out a disclaimer though very quickly I don't believe that I'm the foremost authority on discipleship nor do I believe I've made it or arrived as a disciple maker. Don't think that. I'm literally learning daily what this looks like and how to do it. But I can say from firsthand experience, when men began to walk with me through the truths of the gospel about the Christ life, my life changed dramatically. What was true of me on a spiritual level began to manifest itself in my life. And you know what made the difference? I finally saw it. Someone was showing me. Someone was teaching me, modeling it for me. Guess what? You can't be what you don't see because you become what you behold. And now it's good to read the Bible, and there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit is powerful and capable, but God clearly in the Bible, if you read it, intends for us to make disciples and invest in each other's lives. Again, I'm thankful for the men who are intentionally invested in my life even to this day and who are modeling for me what it looks like to follow Christ, some of whom are sitting in this room and even watching online. I'm thankful for them, and I want them to know very plainly from me, I have no intent to let the train stop with me. I want to reproduce the same things they've been given in my life because that's what discipleship is. Discipleship minus reproduction is not discipleship. It must include multiplication. So here's the key truth for this morning. The Christian life is meant to be shared. The Christian life is meant to be shared. If you read in the book of 2 Timothy, which Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, disciples of Christ, if you read in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, disciples of Christ are meant to be vessels ready for every good work. I know y'all heard that language before. Vessels, right? But God put this on my heart literally yesterday. The way it describes us as being vessels for every good work, 
I don't hear the word lid being used in that sentence. But we often live like vessels with a lid on it, refusing oftentimes to share all the things that Christ has invested in us. Are y'all feeling me on that? We live like we got a lid on it. Here's the second point. The gospel came to you because it was headed to someone else. God saved you to be a conduit through whom his gospel would flow to others. Again, the train's not supposed to stop at you. The Christian life is meant to be lived inside out, not outside in. For some reason in America, we have this consumer-driven church culture, as if it's all about me. I go to this church because I like this. I'm involved in this Bible study because I like this. What if we all came to church and wondered what we could give instead of what we could get? I think that would change a lot of things in our country. That's just my humble opinion. This kind of lifestyle, inside out, dominated Jesus' ministry. And he fully intends for this kind of mindset to dominate the lives of his followers. There's no doubt in my mind. We are to be others-minded. Y'all ever seen those collapsible drinking cups? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You can buy them on Amazon. But they're like an inch like this, but then you just, boom, and it just turns into a cup. Y'all ever seen those before? Y'all ever seen those before? Check out this quote. It's kind of silly, but it's right on. Someone once said, a Christian is like a collapsible drinking cup. The more he opens up to others, the greater his capacity for the things of Christ. You want to experience Christ on a deeper level, friend? Make your focus others instead of self. That's my encouragement. In our lives, we are either growing, listen to this, in our lives, we are either growing or slowing the gospel's advance to others. And what makes the difference? I would ask you this question. Take the, have you taken the lid off? Take the lid off. Be an open vessel, ready for every good work. So our key text this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. If you could turn to that letter, it's in the back of your Bible, near the back of your Bible, after Colossians. If you get to Timothy, you've gone too far. This is what the text says. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a copy with you. It says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Would you all pray with me? Father, thank you, first and foremost, for the gift of your Son, and that we can have life in his name. Thank you for this church that takes very seriously biblical truth. Thank you for our pastor who leads so well as he follows Christ. Thank you for the men and women who are invested in other believers' lives, God. And I pray that today we would all walk away, myself included, with a clear understanding of what your will for us is concerning disciple-making and concerning sharing our lives. God, I pray that your word would speak to us and that your Holy Spirit would make himself known this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump into this verse, I'm going to give you some context. So the church in Thessalonica was started by Paul on his second missionary journey. He was accompanied by Silas and Timothy. When you read in 1 Thessalonians, you see that it's the three of them actually who are writing this letter, letter together while Paul's heading it. It's really from the three of them. If you read Acts 17, 1 through 9, it gives us a detailed account of the church's beginnings. And it was a very eventful one. I would encourage you in your spare time and your quiet time this week, go read that story. They saw numerous people turn to Christ, but were run off by the Jewish religious leaders. They literally drug one of these new disciples of Christ out in front of the religious authorities, and they say, arguably, in my opinion, one of the most powerful statements concerning the early church. They say this, 
These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And can I tell you that's what the gospel is meant to do? Can I tell you that? The gospel is meant to turn the world upside down. I, I saw this last night and I thought it was too good not to share just to give you perspective of what that really means. The gospel enables people to have a proper view of God's purposes, but this is in direct contradiction to the world's purposes. Listen to this. The world says, affirm yourself. Christianity says, deny yourself. The world says, you do you. Christianity says, be like Jesus. The world says, my body, my choice. Christianity says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. The world says there are many ways to God. Christianity says Jesus is the way to God. The world says live your truth. Christianity says the truth will set you free. The world says cancel your enemies. Christianity says love your enemies and pray for them. That's what the gospel does. It turns the world upside down. I want to be a part of that. See, Paul and his companions at this point were forced to move on from Thessalonica because of the Authorities rising up on them, but Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica later, and according to 1 Thessalonians 3.2, he was sent back to establish and exhort them in the faith. In essence, Timothy was sent back to build on the foundation that Paul laid in sharing the gospel. He was sent back to, somebody tell me buzzword, disciple them. He was sent back to invest in them. Paul is writing this letter to the church after receiving Timothy's report on the church in Thessalonica. And this section of scripture that we find our text in, in verses 1 through 12, would suggest that people outside the church were charging Paul and his companions with unworthy motives and improper conduct. And here we're seeing Paul set the story straight, calling the people's attention to the gospel and to the way he, Silas, and Timothy all conducted themselves before them. So my hope for us this morning is that you would walk away with a clear picture of how to make disciples and be encouraged and spurred from the word to do it in your life. Because this is not an overreaction. We have a great need in our church for discipleship. There are some soldiers for Christ. I'm just making a shameless student ministry plug right here. We got some soldiers for Christ over in the student ministry, but I can't disciple all of them. Can't. Need help. And we've got people invested, but I'd encourage you to be a part of that. So let's look what we can learn from this text. We're going to break it down piece by piece. So being affectionately desirous of you. First point of of a shared life is this. A shared life shows deep concern for others. Deep concern. Affectionately desirous of you could also be translated as loving fervently. That's deep concern. They had deep affection for these Thessalonian believers, such as for family, members of the bodies of Christ, of the body of Christ. Here's the deal, y'all. They were not indifferent to the well-being of these Thessalonian believers, no matter how young they were in their faith. They were not indifferent. Verse 7 tells us that their concern for these new and young believers in Thessalonica is compared to the love that a mother has for her child. And this is a very important comparison to make. All right, listen. A mother cannot often put into words the connection she feels with a new baby, but it is deep love. Mothers in here, am I wrong? Am I right on? Deep love, connected love, selfless love. Nobody had to teach my wife how to wake up in the middle of the night when Mia started crying. She just did it because she loved her, wanted to be there for her. A newborn baby is not kept at a distance, but close to the heart in someone's arms. 
Y'all can picture that, right? Okay. New believers and young believers need to be fed, loved, and tenderly cared for just like newborn babies, regardless of their age. New and young believers need nurturing and nourishment, just like that given by a mother. They need nurturing and nourishment. Who's giving it to them? Also consider this. While the, what a mother feeds her children is important, but it's equally important how she feeds her children. In the same way, how we feed the word and how we model faith to, the, faith to those we are teaching must be emphasized. It must be loving and it must be patient, seasoned with salt. So I'm going to use an example that I love to use because I think it's timeless, but I think it clearly illustrates what I'm talking about here. My son, Dominic, for those who don't know, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old son named Dominic. He's, the, he's awesome. He's dope. That means awesome. All right. Um, just some Gen Z lingo for you. You can use it with your kids later. You're welcome. Um, but he just learned how to walk, okay? He went from doing the penguin waddle to now he's like full on, like bobbing his head, like feeling himself. But here's the deal. Y'all stay with me. This is funny, but here's the deal. When he first started walking, let me ask you something. Did he just get up and just go? That man stood up and he was doing the surfboard. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not sure about this, dad. He's trying to walk. And let me ask you something. When that man stood up to his feet the first time on his own, how do you think I reacted? Man, I was hyped. I was like celebrating, putting it on Instagram, like, woo, look at my son. You know what I'm saying? But here's the deal. I wasn't ridiculing him for not being able to make big steps. So then he's over here taking one little step, another little step, and then just either face planting or just bailing out on his booty. All right, that's what he did. But even with every little step, there was never a point where I was ridiculing him, casting him down, making him feel bad for not being able to make it all the way across the room right off the bat. Now, here's why I'm sharing that with you. Why don't we treat new believers like that? Why can't we celebrate small victories with them? Why do we put these expectations on just because they've placed faith in Christ that the next day they're going to be able to walk all the way across life with no mistakes? What if we spent time celebrating, hyping up them? When they fall, we get up, we dust them off, and we say, man, his grace is sufficient for you. What if we did that? That's the kind of nurturing and nourishment that mothers give to their children, and that's the kind of nurturing and nourishment that we must give young believers regardless of their age. Grace and truth. So let's keep going. I'm so grateful that the men who walk with me did not give up on me when I did not grasp it right away. I'm thankful that they were patient with me and weren't frustrated by my questions and pushbacks. And if you ever talk to anybody who's discipled me, I was full of pushback. <laughs> All right? But you know what they did? Point me to the word. Show me with their life. They were loving and patient. Because they were building me. Disciples are built. They're not born. Let's keep going. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Second point of a shared life is this. A shared life sacrifices for others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 models what a humble Christian life is supposed to look like. And if you want to read what the perfect illustration of humility looks like, just read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and we can learn from Christ there. But verses 3 and 4 say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. We is in reference to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, 
So if in your mind right now you're thinking, well, that's Paul. He's doing this because he's Paul. Uh Uh-uh. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all disciples of Christ and all very intentional and relatable disciple makers. All three of them. The NIV says our lives as well. Truly sharing your life, truly doing that is relational and intentional. It's not going to happen on accident. Parents in here, stop hoping that your children get discipled by, on accident, just by proxy. If I put them at the church, it's going to happen. It may. It may not. Truly sharing your life is relational and intentional. This requires time, commitment, vulnerability, and ultimately sacrifice. Disciple making involves sharing the gospel, no doubt. There's no doubt about it. But it's beyond that. One doesn't plant a seed in somebody's life to never visit it again. This is the cost of discipleship. It requires death to self. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, every day. And nobody ever picks up a cross without the expectation that they're going to die. It don't happen like that. Christ exemplified and said straightforward. I want you all to hear me on this piece. This convicted me. Christ exemplified and said straightforward that the greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. And if that's true, which it is, at best, self is third on the priority list for the disciple of Christ. And if you get those things out of order, you're going to miss a lot of what the Christ life has to offer you. You know the best way for you to love yourself? Give yourself away. Share your life. So being affectionately desirous of you, we, did, we were glad to share not only the gospel of God with you, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. A shared life grows in love for others. This word very dear right here in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.8, very dear, could also be translated as beloved. Friends, that's the same word that God used to describe his son. Is that an intense word for love? Beloved. They love these people. Jesus said this in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. This will be evidence that you truly are following me, Christian, if you have love for one another. If your life is void of love for other people, especially love for the body of Christ, that's a red flag. In their time of sharing the truths of the gospel and walking with these people, they grew to love them. And this is just my opinion again, but there's nothing that can grow people closer together than the gospel and life-on-life disciple-making. The closest relationships of my entire life have not happened outside of discipleship. The most intimate, beneficial, good relationships I've had have been saturated in the gospel and in people sharing their life with me. In verses 9 through 12 of this passage, we see Paul also liken the disciple-maker to a father, right? A a disciple-maker's care is not merely tender, meant to nourish and nurture, but it also includes these things, instruction, correction, support, and discipline. And all of these activities are typically spearheaded by the father in the household, correct? That's what discipleship is in a nutshell. It's spiritual parenting. And there are a lot of parentless Christians. Y'all feel me? They don't have spiritual parents. Think about Paul's words in this passage with me real quick. It's going to be on the screen. Think about his words to these Thessalonian believers. 
He says in verse 8 that we were affectionately desirous of you. He says again in verse 8 that they were ready to share their own selves with you. Verse 8, you were very dear to us. Verse 9, we worked night and day on your behalf. Verse 12, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you. And let me tell you, that's just five references. This, this whole letter is full of language like that. Language like that. Now, I'm going to ask you a very tough question. Please listen to me. How many of us have ever experienced discipleship encompassed by that kind of attitude? First 10 years of my walk with Christ, I didn't see nothing like that. And I have a lot of scars that I, I didn't really need to have. How many of us are providing that kind of upbringing for the next generation of believers? And don't get it twisted. I'm preaching this to myself. This is the inside-out mindset. It's others-focused. This is the product of a shared life. Someone who has said, yes, yeah, self is third. God is first and others are second. A man who's had an enormous impact on my life through the people he discipled, interestingly enough. I never really got to know this man personally, but he discipled people who invested in me. His name was Herb Hodges. And he said this, a disciple maker must not live in a house of mirrors, always finally seeing only himself, but in a house of windows, always seeing and maximizing others. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Lay your life down for others. So I ask each believer in the room, and I must answer these questions as well, how much of the spiritual activity of your life is performed for the building up of others? How much of the spiritual activity of your life is performed for the building up of others? And weigh that against how much time you spend on intrinsic motivation, just on self. What standard do you have, what standard do I have to transfer your life and your walk to other Christians? And here's another tough question. Is your life worth modeling after? I ask myself that every day. You know what the greatest accountability in my life is right now? Aside from, obviously, my conviction for the Lord and my wife and my kids, you know what the greatest level of accountability in my life is right here? Dudes like this. Right here. They have brought another level of accountability to my life that I didn't know I needed. Disciple-making, the Christian life, must be taught. There's no doubt about it. But it's also equally important that it's caught. And this can only happen through consistent and accountable relationships, through shared lives. When Jesus called his apostles, people often miss this. When he called his apostles in Mark 3.14, he chose 12 first and foremost so that they might be with him. They had to be with him first before he ever had intentions of sending them. It said that he called them to himself to be with him and so that he might send them out future tense to preach the gospel. First and foremost, they had to be with him. This same concept is true of us for the church. When new believers come to faith, we need them to be with us. We have to share our life with them and stop putting expectations on them that they're going to be Billy Graham the next day. And we're, we're so shocked when this person, especially these kids, get saved and the next day fail. That's all they've ever known is to choose the flesh. You've got to learn that. You gotta have your mind renewed. 
As we disciple, though, I want to make sure you hear me say this. As we disciple, though, we must rely upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We can spin our wheels sowing and watering, but only, only God gives the growth. But he wants to do it. Don't he? You think God doesn't want to give growth? But are we sowing and watering? That's the question. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And here's the truth. Paul just finished his series, Equip, talking about all these different ways to equip every believer for every season, for every work, right? And that's what we're supposed to be as disciples of Christ. Vessels for every good work. Ready for every good work. And here's the truth. A parent's first ministry is to their household. Everybody agree with that? Man, we must, we must, a Christian parents must disciple and build up their children in the faith and model for them what it looks like to follow Jesus, both in proper teaching and in lifestyle. Like we have to do that. Children need to hear it and see it in their own homes. They need to. And here's the deal. The light of your life should shine brightest at home. It should. But here's a very sad and true reality. You ready? Not every new and young believer has a spiritual parent in their household. So the question is, who's going to stand in the gap for these? Who's going to step up? Who will step into their lives? Who will invite them into their own lives? And I think the Bible backs me up on this, but this is the job of the church. The entire church body. In John 21... When Jesus is reestablishing Peter after he denied him three times, y'all know the story. He asked him three questions, same question, do you love me, right? And in his response, Peter's like, yeah, Lord, I love you. And he tells him, tend and feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In essence, spiritual leadership involves if you love him, you will feed them. If you love Jesus, the things that he's imparted and entrusted to you through the gospel and through the investment that people have placed in your life, he fully expects you to reproduce those things in the lives of others. Christians are supposed to live like rivers and not like lakes. You know the difference? Rivers are constantly flowing, moving from one point to another. Lakes are stagnant, just sitting. That's not a Christian. Christian's supposed to live like a river. Pastor Paul often says, everything God desires to do in and through your life he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. As you walk with Christ, you will naturally guide others to him. With each step we take in following Christ, we are simultaneously leading other people to him. I want you to imagine that I'm following Christ close. That way, anytime anybody ever looks at me, you know what I hope they see? Christ in plain view. But the closer I am to him, the clearer picture of him I'm given to others. And the truth is, that's the goal of every Christian life. That's not just my goal because I'm a youth pastor. That's just my role in the body. It don't make me special. It don't give me special access to Jesus. It don't work like that. I, I, I promise it don't. If it did, I felt like I would know. But Paul in this passage, along with his fellow disciple makers, Silas and Timothy, he's modeling for us what a disciple maker is supposed to look like. And there's no doubt in my mind that disciple makers are supposed to share their life. Sitting down at a cl- in a classroom and unpacking biblical truth, absolutely important. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if that's all there is, I believe it falls short of what biblical discipleship is supposed to look like. Life together. Children, young believers, new believers, and they're of all ages, friend. I've met new believers in their 50s and 60s. This ain't just talking about students and children. These people need to see it. 
Again, because if you haven't seen it, it'll be hard for you to be it. Because you become what you behold. And in essence, this whole passage is saying this. Disciple making is about more than just sharing the gospel. It's sharing your life with others in love. Are you willing to share your life? Are you willing to make the sacrifices necessary to invite somebody into your life? The men who have invited me into theirs, they had to make a tough decision. Because when I was around them, life on life discipleship, I didn't just see their spiritual successes. I saw their failures. Before I got married, I sat in the car with a man named Roy Campbell, Soup, who discipled me for a year. I lived right next door to him in Memphis. Right next door. That's how life on life we were. All right? And I was in the car with him and his wife, and they got sideways on each other. Y'all know what that means? <laughs> now listen, they got sideways. And they had a disagreement. Now listen, very valuable moment for me, and here's why. They were talking and treating each other exactly how they would have treated each other had I not been in the car. Me being in the car didn't change who they were. Christianity wasn't a light switch for them, meaning that they were consistently the people that they said they were in formal settings that they were in informal settings in the car, on the way to vote. That's what we were doing, <laughs> all right, in 2016. But see, here's the deal. Married people in here, me watching how a godly man treated his wife when they had a disagreement, was that important for me to see before I got married? <laughs> Elisa. <laughs> She's like, praise the Lord. <laughs> but listen, that's a small example of what I'm talking about. But they didn't have to take me with them. They didn't have to invite me into their life. They didn't have to. Vulnerable. Are you willing to be vulnerable to share your life with people? And I'll say it again, friends. Young believers, new believers, they need you. I needed those people in my life, and I promise you I wouldn't be standing here apart from them. That's why I'm so intense about disciple-making, because Jesus saved my life, redeemed my life, but discipleship changed my life. Alongside the Holy Spirit, obviously, but it was a crucial variable. So for us in the room today, I got a couple of questions as we close, and I'll invite the worship team to come back up. For us in the room today, would you consider doing these two things? Would you consider inviting people into your life? Would you do that? Would you pray about what that looks like for you? Maybe you're already doing it, and God bless you, keep doing it. But would you pray about inviting people into your life, allowing them to see you, both your successes and your failures? Would you allow people to have a sneak peek into who you truly are as you walk with Christ? And then the second thing was, would you consider investing your life? Man, here's the truth. Your spiritual cupboards are probably full. Someone once told me that I know more right now biblically than most third world pastors meaning that I have been given a rich nourishment. And trust me, if you come to this church long enough, and you've been here over a year, you have so much spiritual nourishment, you don't know what to do with it. You're a sponge bursting at the seams. What are you doing with that? Nothing that's ever been imparted to you from this pulpit was meant to stop with you. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you everything I'm saying today, I don't have copyright over it, it's the Bible. You take it, you do what you want with it. You don't even have to use my name. 
I'm not worried about that. Just make sure you use Christ's name. Would you be willing to invest to invite people into your life? And I don't care how old you are. It's not too late. And I also don't care how young you are. It's not too early. The Christian life is meant to be shared. And friends, you can share your time, your wisdom, your resources, your home. You can share a meal. You can share experiences and so much more with the next generation of believers. You have so much to offer. You want to know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God, the same one that rose Christ from the dead, dwells within you. That's why. Because we're vessels. But the most important thing you can share is Christ in you. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And this is not a dramatic statement. Again, they need you. New and young believers need you to share your life with them. Share your life. Give your life away. You won't regret it. Would you pray with me right now as we continue worshiping? And would you ask God, regardless of what season of life that you're in, would you ask God to show you one person Nobody's asked you to disciple a hundred. Jesus ain't even do that. One, ask God to show you one person who you could invite into your life so that they could see Christ through you. One person that you could share your life with. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the impact your word has had on my life. Thank you, God, for the people who shared the gospel with me. Thank you, God, especially for the men who have invested in me and invited me into their life. Thank you, God, that I had men step into my life, invest in me, and teach me the truth of what it looks like to follow Christ, but not just teach them to me with their words, Father, but model them to me with their life. I'm so thankful for the vulnerability of men who are willing to let me see their successes and failures. The Christian life's not about being perfect. That's the point, we aren't. God, and I pray that you would burden our hearts to give our lives away. God, give us the conviction from your Holy Spirit to share our lives, to see that the true fruitful Christian life is found in giving ourselves to others. And God, I pray that you would show everyone within the sound of my voice, somebody in their life who they can share their life with. We would light this community on fire if each of us would disciple just one person. God, help us to learn. Holy Spirit, bring to remembrance all that Jesus has taught us. And God, I pray that you would move in and amongst us as we seek to glorify you and make your kingdom known in all the spaces and places that we're in. God, I pray that you be glorified in the way that we respond to your word. Give us the grace and strength necessary to obey you and trust you and take steps of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.